previously on Mentally Yours. The thing that I think uh, characterized my relationship most with my mom was inconsistency. My mom had been awful if she'd been universally mean or abusive. It would have been much easier to walk away from the situation and just say, this is completely dysfunctional, I'm done. But the fact is my mother was a good mother in many respects. She was the first person to support my writing. Whenever I had a problem with a friend, she always wanted to help me through it. She was um, as she, doing a good a job as she was capable of doing. It's mentally yours from Ellen and Welcome to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's weekly podcast about all things mental health. I'm Ellen, and this week we're talking to Paul McGregor. He's the founder of Men's Fashion Mag and also a public speaker about all things mental health. He lost his dad to suicide when he was 18, and we're going to be talking about that today and men's mental health in general. The way I explain it is I had quite a normal childhood, normal life all the way up until about 18. So I was quite academic at school, played football, had lots of friends. Mum and dad were together, brother two years older, four-bedroom house, complete standard life. And then when I was 18, my dad, who I always had everything on paper, so he was a full-time engineer, part-time physiotherapy business, had a psychology degree, um, he was very physically healthy, he was an athlete, he ran a lot, had the only thing that I can explain it is, is like a breakdown. Mm. So he went from just my dad to me seeing him one day and him being very distant and completely different. And he um, reached out to the doctors that that day and got prescribed antidepressants. Um, didn't have any effect on him, so he went back, doubled the dose, and within a short period of time, it was no more than just over a week, mm. attempted suicide for the first time. That was the first time that you know we were, I was exposed to suicide, the word suicide, and but he survived that accident, and then it was a six-month battle of him getting better, getting worse. Mm was sectioned he sectioned himself into a mental health unit and then yeah I'm sure we'll go deeper into it but he eventually took his life on the 4th of March 2009 and that was the real first exposure to suicide. So when you say he had a breakdown do you know what prompted it like how did that happen how does it happen? Yeah I think looking back we look back now as a family and we try and piece some bits together mm. and the way that I see my dad is he could never sit still like he had to do something. Mm. So he was very obsessive. Like he'd have to go for a run every single day, if not twice a day. Mm -hmm. He had to write down his runs in this notebook that he had. He worked a full-time job, but at home he did a physiotherapy business. So he was always doing something. And the way I saw it is he almost used that busyness as a distraction for maybe something that he was dealing with that we didn't know. Mm-hmm. And then that breakdown was so sudden because obviously I think a lot of those emotions maybe came to the surface very, very quickly. But there was a lot of factors. Like he lost a little bit of money in the stock market. and But there was nothing that we pinpointed. I think it was purely just him distracting himself for so long. That sounds kind of scarily familiar. I think a lot of people 
do that, including myself, where it's mm. like, just keep you busy and then you won't have to think about all the tough stuff that's going on Yeah, as well, which is slightly scary to say. Um, when the first attempt happened, you said that's kind of the first you talked about suicide. How did your parents talk to you about it? Was it again, it was a really strange one because it was an accident that happened and we didn't think dad would survive. And when he came round from the accident, he was in a coma and, you know, we were waiting for him to wake up and we were told that, you know, we it was suicide, an attempted suicide by the, the police. But he, he kind of came around from his coma and, and denied all of it and really blamed it on the antidepressants because my dad was very holistic. He never took paracetamol, never took anything. And now all of a sudden he was taking antidepressants and... You know, we we know with antidepressants that one of the side effects is suicidal thoughts in the mm. first two weeks. So we kind of believed, I believed him. I don't know if my brother and my mum did, but I believed him that it was the antidepressants and that he would come home and it would all go back to normal. Yeah, it'd be fine. But yeah, when he came home, I remember that, the moment of we were sitting at home as a family having fish and chips, I think, as you do, if you're from Essex. And um, and yeah, it was it was an amazing feeling to have dad home and feel like I've escaped this nightmare. And then, yeah, it, it got worse. But he never really admitted that he did try and he didn't really talk about him ever attempting to do it. There was some times when he said, oh, I feel like I'm going to take my own life. But mm. he was very secretive about it. How was your relationship with him at that point? I say now I lost my dad the day he had that breakdown. Mm. So like, he was such a different person. So even when he came out of hospital and, you know, then he sectioned himself and he spent, you know, a good couple of months in a mental health unit in and out and yeah I always say I lost my dad that day that he broke because he was never the same even when he came out of the mental health unit there was a time where we felt like he was better so he came and watched me play football and again it was amazing to have my dad there after all of this had happened after he'd been in a mental health unit and now he's at home and seemed okay but he was never right he just was numb he was just different behaviours, different personality. It's really interesting to hear it's that kind of switch that you can notice. Yeah, and I think it goes back to, as we said, I think so many people do it. I'd, I've done it, you said you've done it, and I think a lot of people do it. It's, it's that distraction, distract yourself from those emotions, chase short-term fixes, yeah, and then all of a sudden something can Just you know, happen. change suddenly. Mm. So after the attempt, what happened then so he sectioned himself um was he having any kind of therapy or was it mostly just antidepressants he um yeah he came home and then again it was oh dad's home he's better and then he got worse and he felt suicidal and he also felt quite violent again complete different behavior to who my dad was he never had a fight in his life he wasn't a manly man he was quite a sensitive guy and um he then yeah he ended up sectioning himself and it was being restrained in one ward and then being allowed out and then being allowed into the canteen and then being allowed home over a period of time. Mm. Um, and he was having therapy when he was in there. But I always say now, and this is something that I I I'm, I feel a bit guilty about, is I had, I had no idea what he was doing. I had no idea what pills he was taking I had no idea what therapy he was doing I we just had no education about mental health realistically I think if you're the son it's it, you can't know these things yeah. you know it's important and also like when you're a teenager 
you're not thinking about these things. It's, mm. it's not your responsibility. Yeah, and it's, it's, I think it's just, again, everyone has it. It's that lack of education. Yeah, like I said, sure. when Dad came out of the doctors that day with antidepressants, or even when he came out of the mental health unit after being in there for a, a bit a period of time, we never got a family meeting mm. and said, this is how you need to support him. It was almost just left for him to do on his own. And I think if we had that education, if I knew what I know now, mm. I could maybe have supported him better. But as you said, it's so different you know, when you're actually in that moment. For sure. I just um, mean in terms of guilt. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, shouldn't, yeah. Yeah. No, of course. And I just think the guilt is carried from suicide in a way anyway. It's yeah. the emotion that I battled with for a long period of time. And um, But yeah, after accepting his suicide, a lot of that guilt does go away. But I just think it was, if I had that education earlier on, mm. I maybe would have been able to deal with it better. And I mean, this mental health unit was like five, ten minutes from where we lived. I never even knew it existed. Like, you know, you just kind of get on with your life and you never really hear anything about mental health. My dad had no mental illness or it was just such a quick change. And then we were so exposed to it very, very quickly. So you mentioned you went clubbing, you were just trying to bury it. But how are you feeling kind of behind closed doors, like not in front of other people? I was writing about this on the train up here, actually, about how um, going clubbing and distracting myself was just me having that mask. Mm. So I was wearing that mask out in public. And a good example of that is what we went to, like a pub, and I drove. And again, it was a couple of weeks after, and I was just chatting with everyone. And I drove home just crying, just mm. tears. Same thing with going to work. I went back to work, and the work, work was about a 40-minute drive. I spent every journey up there and back crying my eyes out. I'd get into work, smile at everyone, and just sort of crack on. Um, so the mask kind of distracted me from dealing with it. But yeah, inside it was horrible. It was knowing that I'd never see him again. I battled a lot with knowing that he'd never be at my wedding or see, have grandkids. Mm. Um, and that made my future look less exciting, knowing that he would never be there. And um, that didn't help me because obviously I then didn't look forward to the future. Yeah. But I think it was just the, the hardest thing for me was just knowing that I'd never, ever see him again. And that was it. Just, just holding that thought of he will, I would never ever see him again. Mm. I'll never be able to talk to him again, and that's. I think that's just any form of grief. You mentioned also you felt guilt, which I think is common for families of people who have um, took their own lives. Did you feel any anger? Mm, loads. Mm. Yeah. So again, yeah, loads. Yeah. <laughs> like I just, I, I. There was times where I hated him. Times where I hated him for what he did to to us, for what he did to my mum, like. Why could he do it? Yeah. And that's the question that I just sort of asked myself over and over and over again. Why, why, why? And it just ate away at me at the end. And that's why I had to start understanding it and and helped me understand it, which got rid of a lot of that anger. Mm. Because then I could see that it wasn't him making a choice to hurt us. Yeah. You know, it was him knowing that if he's, he's burdening us already, so if he leaves, if he dies, then he's doing us a favour, he's making our lives better because mm. that's the that's probably mindset thought. he was in. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of anger towards him, a lot of anger towards myself. I didn't do anything wrong, but it was that you pick up on moments. Like I saw him the night before and I knew I should have done something, but I didn't because I was just tired and I just didn't know what to do anymore. So he was he was let out of the mental health unit, I think it was on the Tuesday and I went around to see him because he was at my nan and granddad's and he was saying things like, I'll never be the same dad again. And he was just 
really, really bad. We got him into the mental health unit just a couple of days before and he was really bad. Mm. And it was like, I just come back from work and I was like, I, I can't take him back to the mental health unit. The same thing's going to happen again. He kept going in, coming out, coming in. Mm. And I just went home and then I never saw him again. And that was the hardest thing is thinking to myself, I could have done something. Could that have changed the outcome? Mm. So yeah, anger towards him, anger towards me. I think that's natural though. Yeah. Like, and people are always going to analyse kind of those last moments and like, did I do this? Did I? But there's no way to know. And also mm. I think what's important for people to know is that prevention is absolutely possible and you can do as much as you can and that's a wonderful thing, but sometimes it, it will still happen mm. and that's awful and a horrible thing to have to kind of come to terms with, but sometimes it does still happen. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that helped me. Is I, I I truly believed that my dad was was never going to be saved because, yeah. and I talk a lot a lot about it now. This is why early intervention is so important. Yeah, because he was at a point where he was just in crisis, and yes, maybe he could have been saved at that point. I don't know, but it was the 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 odds were that he was never going to be saved because mm. it was too late. Yeah, it needed. It needed to Before be Before those signs are even there. Mm-hmm. I think that's what's kind of scary about our mental health care system at the moment is yeah. that you do have to be at crisis point to get urgent help. I shared a, a tweet recently. It wasn't my tweet. It was a, a tweet from a, a girl called Jodie and it said, you wouldn't wait for every bone in your body to break before you treat a broken arm. Yeah. And that's how mental health is treated. That's a really good analogy. Actually. Yeah, like if you if you go to the, I say if my dad went to the doctor sort of five years before that and said I feel fatigued or I feel tired, mm. they might have said, you know, go away and try this and come back when it gets worse. And the thing is with mental health is we're very reactive at the moment. We're not proactive. Yeah, and this is why it should be taught in schools. It should be, you know, intervened a lot earlier rather than waiting for someone to attempt or become critical and then giving them support. Um, so yeah, that that did help me as well. Actually, knowing that I think my dad would was at a point that was probably too yeah. far gone, and yeah, the the guilt kind of does go after some time. After your dad's suicide, did you, as a family, talk about that at all, or did you talk about mental health in general more? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we've always been quite an, um, a, a very close, small, small family, very open family. We did talk about it and I always knew that I could talk to my mum and I always do know that I can talk to my mum. My issue was, is being a man, like a young, like 19, and then turned 19, I also didn't want to burden them with it. So like my mum, my brother, I didn't want to talk to them because they were going through it as well. And I've um, recently wrote about it in, in the book is how we were all battling our different battles. Like mum was battling her you know, ways she was dealing with it. My brother was dealing it a different way. I was dealing it my way. So although I knew that I could speak to them, I didn't. Mm. So I kind of like held it all in. How did you deal with it at the time? Just just bottling it up. Like I went I went clubbing sort of six days after my dad's suicide mm. because that was just how I thought I should deal with it. And I remember when it happened, I cried, I punched the kitchen surface and just was in a complete rage. And then life carries on like few hours later we're at home and just life life moves on but yeah my friends offered a lot of support and I accepted that support but then it was just very quickly for me I needed to get back to reality because I didn't want to deal with it I just wanted to get back to normal life so yeah I just did all the wrong things just buried it and just continued to just push forward and trying to ignore that it happened 
Were you open with your friends about what happened? Yeah, some. They knew. Mm. Like a, a lot of the main ones came to his funeral because he was heavily involved in like our football teams and, and a lot of them knew him. They knew, but it was always very like we wouldn't go deep into it. Yeah. They might bring it up, but then I would close them down straight away. I didn't want to talk about it. I remember my dad's um, wake. After his funeral, we went to um, like a bar and my mum and that went home and a lot of my friends were still there and I was still drinking and still drinking and still drinking. And after a couple of drinks, and this is typically a mouth thing to do, we started to become a little bit more open. Yeah. Um, but before that, I just wanted to drink to get back to normality and just kind of ignore the fact that it was my dad's funeral in a way. Because I think in one of your blog posts, you mentioned you didn't really admit to people it was a suicide. Mm. And I think a lot of people don't. They just kind of say, oh, this person died. They don't want to say the S word, yeah. basically. Did you go through that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a, after, all the, after all the funeral, I found that was the hardest moment because you're almost an autopilot, sort of planning the funeral and just trying to let it sink in. And then when you go back to work and everything goes on as normal, that's when it was hard. And, yeah, there was loads of moments where people might say, you know, oh, do you live with your mum and dad? And I'd say, oh, no, I, you know, I live with my, my mum, my dad died. And they'd say, oh, how, how did he die of cancer? That was normally the response. And I would say, I would just straight away just bottle up and I would say, no, um, he died in a road accident. Yeah. And I would never, ever say he died from suicide because I didn't want them to judge him. I didn't want them to judge me or judge my family. But at the same time, I didn't want to deal with the awkward silences or pauses or conversation that was going to follow that see i used to i used to lie a lot about it because i just didn't want to talk about it or feel like i could talk about it how did you think people would judge you and your family for it like we maybe couldn't save him or mm. we were the reason why he did it or he was weak for doing it and it was more like strangers does that make sense so like, yeah for without sure. them knowing me my family my dad that's how they might have perceived it so that, that was my fear, and that's why I kind of lied about it. And also as well, I just think it was a part of me running away from it. Oh, yeah. I just didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to deal with it. Have you found that kind of judgment from anyone in reality? Mm, a few people. Mm. Obviously a lot more awareness I do now. There's always a few posts that people put on, like, you know, selfish. And, yeah. and there is still that stigma around suicide. Um, but I was exploring it recently, talking to someone about how the British culture deal with grief anyway. We're terrible with grief, even if it's just a death. Like, we just bottle up and we don't want to talk about it. So you add suicide into that as well. Again, something that we don't want to talk about. It, it's, it's There's such a silence around grief and there's such a silence around um, suicide that, yeah, it doesn't help. Yeah, it's a massive wall. And mm. just taking that apart is hard work yeah but you do talk about suicide now quite openly mm. what changed how come you started deciding to talk about it so i um like i said i bottled everything up i started a business which again was a good distraction it was a good it was good meaning for me i wanted to do it and i wanted to achieve something but at the same time it just meant that i could just work more to distract myself from it i just did more and more stuff to distract myself. And then about a year after, two years after, I found myself in like a really, really low place. The doctor said that I had depression, but I ran away from that diagnosis because I didn't want to end up like my dad. And I felt like I was going that same route. And he said to me to go and see a counsellor. There was a huge waiting list even back then, but he pushed it through, luckily. And I think it was I've seen him three weeks. 
I saw her once or twice and it just didn't work. And then I think I, my mum or I paid for like a psychiatrist, just one appointment didn't really work. And then as time went on, time went on, I had back problems and I just thought it was because I sat down at home working on my business. I saw like an acupuncturist, I saw um, uh, just chiropractor, everything. And um, Amy, who's now my wife, I was dating her and she said, my friend goes and sees this lady called Anne. She gives massage for back problems, um, but she's really weird. She's like a witch and she knows more about you than you know about yourself. And for some reason at 21, I was explaining the story, I was just drawn to that. And also it was donations. You just put money in a pot and that was it. So I thought, it's cheap. That sounds good. (laughs) Yeah. And um, I I booked an appointment. I went in there and it was the weirdest experience ever. It's this little bungalow. I walk in, the curtains are closed. There's like wow music or whatever it is. And then you've got oils and this little four foot five lady walks in by the name of Anne. And the first first session was literally just, um, she, why are you here? I'm here for a back problem. She gave me like a, a massage and then she said, go and see this chiropractor. Booked another appointment. And I think it was the second appointment. She said, why are you here? And I said, I'm here for a back problem. She said, no, why are you really here? And I broke. I said, you know, my dad killed himself. I don't know how to deal with it. And I just cried my eyes out. And then she was the first person that I actually started to open up to. And I saw her every single week. And she would just, she wouldn't give me the answers. She would make me think of the answers myself. And then I started to understand suicide, understand my dad, understand myself. And then, yeah, it was like a long period after that of working on myself before I thought I can start sharing it on more of a bigger scale. Why do you think she was the person who you could open up to? Because she's weird and she knows everything about everyone. (laughs) Um, She, there's two things. I think one, I went there, and this is more of like a male thing, I think. I don't don't know, but I went there for a a back problem. Mm -hmm. Whereas I went into a counsellor hoping that they were going to get stuff out of me. Like going into a counsellor, you're sitting there and you're waiting for them to give you the answers sometimes. With her, I just went there and thought, I'll try this out. I'll go there for the massage. Um, secondly, it sounds weird saying this, especially when I was 21, but she has more of a holistic spiritual approach and I was very drawn to that at that time and that seemed to work. And thirdly, she just has an amazing knowledge in terms of she's had a lot of stuff happen to her in the, her life and she's had to get over that all herself mm-hmm. and she just has so much compassion and understanding that she just made it easy for me to kind of talk. Do you still see her? Yes, we'll see her. And she also um, was an amazing for my mum as well. So my mum had a lot of troubles and nothing helped her. But Anne helped her massively as well. That's incredible. Did she also help your back? She did because she (laughs) told me that it was all in my mind. And I was just like, it it was more of like, oh, my back hurts. But it was more of just stress-induced back problems. There was actually no real back problem there. Um, but yeah, she's, I don't see her as much as I used to, but I'll see her every now and then, but she didn't do it. She always says she didn't do anything amazing. It's more of just compassion, being able to listen and then just kind of guiding you rather than trying to give you the answers. Yeah. And I think sometimes that's better for people than kind of a professional counselor. Yeah. Cause for me personally, I found professional counseling great. Mm. Um, and I liked having that kind of like, I knew they had this expertise, they could dissect stuff for me, et cetera. But I definitely have met people who are, that just doesn't work for them. Mm. They don't like that idea. And it's helpful to just have someone that is more accessible yeah. emotionally for whatever yeah. reason. Yeah, I think I think talk, talking, whether it's like you say with a counsellor or just with someone who you can open up to. I think the issue with, with therapy that I found is 
someone tries one person and they give up. Yeah. It is it's very much like trying Oh yeah, it's like can. dating yeah, for sure. Yeah, like finding the right fit. That's is a good hard. way of putting it. It is honestly. You have to be a bit, and you have to be a bit harsh and just be like, if it's not working, it's not working. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people do just dismiss it, and it's like, no, you just have a therapist who isn't the right match. Mm. Like we were talking about this on a couple of episodes ago about um, how race plays into therapy. Yeah. And how important it can be to have someone who knows about race if you are black mm. um and similarly if you are a woman talking about specific women's issues it'd be quite helpful to have a woman i don't know if that would be the same for because you spoke to a woman but so, i can relate to that yeah. i think sometimes men can relate to other men yeah it more just than women, sometimes makes yeah. it a bit easier because yeah. you know they're coming from a place it's just being able to relate to them isn't it yeah exactly have you found it easy to talk to other men about mental health and suicide in general now yeah again so now i do a lot more awareness around it and i do a lot of talks and it's funny to see the impact that it has when i share mm. so an example of that is a couple of weeks ago i did a, a talk at a charity ball um for a charity that was set up because they lost their daughter to suicide and there was about 300 people there and a lot of them were like bald-headed tattooed big guys londoners and I didn't speak until about 10 o'clock at night. It was a black tie event and I, I stood on stage and shared, as I'm, I'm sharing here, it was a more of a compressed version. Mm -hmm. But I always say I just open up. I become very vulnerable standing there on stage. And as I then came off, and it happens with every talk I do, people just come over. And you've got these guys that you would judge as someone who is an open, crying, mm -hmm. sharing their stories with me and saying that they've never told anyone this before. And it's almost like when one person does it, another person feels like they can. And I think that was the same with me. If someone would have maybe shared their story about how they lost their dad to suicide, I might have felt more sort of um, ease talking to them about it. I think 100%. The second someone else can be a bit vulnerable, mm -hmm. it does open people up and it's amazing to see it. Do you think that's kind of your main motivation for talking about mental health and suicide is kind of being the first one to be vulnerable and then kind of hoping it will nudge other people along yeah yeah exactly and it it sounds so basic doesn't it when you yeah. actually look at it like that but it's just it happens time and time and time again whether it's a video that i put on facebook and people sort of see that or it's a talk or it's just a one-on-one -on -one conversation and i find myself now being having conversations with people like on monday the train i missed the last train so i had to get a train to um shenfield and then get a bus home oh, and end up yeah. sitting next to someone on a bus and she was talking about how her dad suffers with depression and because i mentioned where i was in that evening i was doing a dinner for a mm -hmm. mental health event and it's funny like you now have a, i'm having a lot more conversations around it because i'm a little bit more open about it also i think it's interesting that people are really keen to have those conversations it's like maybe they don't have other people to open up to and they're just waiting for someone else to start that conversation with suicide specifically i think you've mentioned and i've mentioned people are still very uncomfortable saying the word talking about it why do you think it's important for us as a society and as individuals to start talking about suicide because one just how many people it affects so I, di I didn't even know the suicide statistics until about three years ago. Mm. And that was sort of five, six years after my dad's suicide. So I was never exposed to those statistics. And they're scary statistics of just one biggest killer of men under 45, biggest killer of young people, um, you know, 6,000 people in the UK. I think it's someone in the world every 40 seconds. 
and that is just the tip of the iceberg. This is what I say now. That's only recorded suicides. My yeah. dad wasn't even a recorded suicide. He was an unrecorded suicide. Um, there's so much more to it. Um, I think the more people can talk about suicide, the less people would suffer in silence. And I think it comes back to, again, that just the more people can talk. And people say talking doesn't solve everything. It doesn't. But it does break down that stigma and it does show others that they're not alone. And I think um, I've spoke to a lot of people that have been in that situation and I've spoke to um, like researchers on it. And they say when you are in that situation, you feel like you're a burden to everyone and you feel like you're alone. So the more someone can actually speak about it, hopefully, as you say, they might then feel like they can share as well. So I think it definitely, the stigma around suicide needs to be broken down. And like you said, it's the big S now. It used to yeah. be, the, you know, the big C and people didn't like talking about cancer. And I think it's not comparable, but yes, more people do need to talk about it because so many are suffering in silence. And also just spotting the signs. Are there any signs that you... It's difficult, isn't it? Because I think people want to look for certain signs, but sometimes there just aren't any mm. and it does happen suddenly. Do you think there are signs that you've learned to be like, that's something to watch out for? Behaviour, definitely. Mm. So like I say, my dad changed behaviour very quickly overnight. Now looking back at that, that was a massive sign. We should have, I, sh you know, we shouldn't have because we didn't know at the time. But if we was educated, like you say, if we knew the signs, we would have done something. Also as well, so then when my dad was in the mental health unit, he would just sit in the corner and do crosswords. He kept himself to himself. He was just very, you know, distant. Mm. Then all of a sudden he got let out because he was happy and he wanted to go home to see his yeah. family. So that was a change in behaviour. So even that was a sign that, you know, professionals missed because I, I get it, it's the hardest thing to try and treat when someone's saying they're okay and they want to go home to their family. But seeing that, it was a massive behaviour change as well. So I think, especially with family, you know them better than anyone to see if you can maybe spot a few changes in behaviour. And I think I've said it before, it's not about trying to fix them, it's trying to support them. Mm. And I think a lot of times we try and fix their problems for them because we love them, we want them to get better. But sometimes it's just giving them that hope and trying to support them. What kind of support do you wish there was for the families of people who kill themselves? There needs to be more support for for bereavement and I think I think just in general as well. Yeah. You know, there's not a lot for bereavement anyway. There's also a lot of studies that have shown that if you've lost someone to suicide, you're more a chance of doing it yourself. And that was and still is my biggest fear. Um, and so I think if we can get support for families and just help them understand maybe why their loved one's done it, Mm. and help them through that whole bereavement process, it will make it easier. Because I always say, like, Anne helped me a lot. I don't know where I'd be without Anne, but also, you know, I had to... It's all about responsibility. I took a lot of responsibility on, and I, you know, did every... Like, reading lots and went on loads of different things to try and make myself better, try different things. Mm. And I think if someone could have told me all of that when it first happened, it wouldn't have taken me sort of 100%. eight years or... And also not everyone's going to be able to do that. Not everyone will be able to try mm. every avenue or even have the kind of motivation to look into everything. No, exactly. And yeah, I speak to people message me now saying they've lost their dad sort of 30 years ago to suicide and they're still struggling. Because as you say, it's trying to intervene earlier, whether it's mental health, any, any mental health, but also people that have lost their loved ones to suicide. How do you think your experiences with your dad have affected how you view your own mental health? Are you more kind of aware 
of how you're feeling or do you ever notice yourself kind of repeating patterns good question yeah i think i'm so aware of it now yeah like i say the, the biggest fear that i had and still is is that i'll end up like my dad and there was times where i was going there just shortly after it happened i think a lot of that looking back and i've ex explained it before is was me trying to figure out how he how he could do it so trying to work work out i was in a very low place mm. i don't think i ever would have took my own life but i was trying to maybe explore how he could have done it to try and understand it a little bit more yeah i'm, I'm so more aware from it and like you said sort of it's been nearly 10 years now and I, i'm i feel like i'm in the best place i've been to talk about it but there's times where i can feel my mental health being affected and for me it's now having that awareness to notice those triggers and notice um when i am feeling worse and i don't think i would have maybe done that without having that experience mm. and for me i always say to people especially people that i speak to are struggling with mental health that sometimes it can be a blessing in disguise because there's so many people like my dad who, who are just existing they're just existing getting on with life for however long it takes and then there might be that breaking point but sometimes when you do struggle with mental health you do have to think about things and you have to be aware of those triggers how do you look after yourself if you notice you are feeling low? Like I say, I, I tried a lot. So like nutrition, exercise, journaling, mm. gratitude, reading. Um, and now I've kind of got it down to like a, they say like a, a toolbox in a way. Yeah. Do you know like what works for you yeah. and what doesn't? CBT toolbox. Yeah. So like one of them toolbox. is um, nutrition. So like I can, I can just binge eat and I can really feel that affect my mental health. I know it sounds silly to some people, but no, if I'm, if I'm eating does. really badly, like I start to feel terrible. So I have to make sure am I eating? Okay. Um, exercise. Like I haven't, to be I haven't exercised for ages and I can feel it a little bit, being a little bit different because of that. Um, spending time with family, talking. Sometimes I might just go and see Anne. Like I said, I don't see her a lot, but I know that she's there so I can ring her up. I come out of that session feeling a lot better. And yeah, my biggest problem that I had recently was was detaching from everyone who now shares their story with me mm. because I'm just nat naturally sort of an empath. I'm quite compassionate. So all I was doing was taking on all of their yeah. issues and I just couldn't sleep and I was just just drained from it. I feel like I'm getting better at that now. How How do you do that? asking for myself to be honest yeah yeah don't go home mm. and start thinking about me <laughs> I, I i stepped away from it so i did something recently called um, a mental health road trip i did an event in london and i said to people do they want to come down and i think about sort of 35 people turned up but a lot of people said they couldn't come but they were like come to sheffield come to newcastle come to glasgow and i just mm. randomly said yeah i'll do a road trip and then it happened and we traveled over 1300 miles in five days wow and we spoke to over 100 people. And yeah, after that, I was done because it was just hearing yeah, so many stories. Draining. What helped me was one, um, knowing that I can't control anything that they're experiencing, which I naturally wanted to do. I naturally wanted to just make it better for them, but I knew that I couldn't. Mm. Um, and two, switching off. Like I just had a week off from everything, two, about two weeks off before I could start doing it again. And I think it's just a switch in perspective. Like when you feel like you feel like you're selfish sometimes. Yeah. For not. But it's not. At like all. Not caring, but it's, that's not the right word of saying it. But I care. But at the same time, you have to care for yourself. Um, and I think, again, society just 
makes you feel like you're selfish if that's the case. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've just tried to put myself first. And I do think, especially for men, like with women, there's a big rise for like self-love and self-care and it's still not really made its way yeah, that's true. to men yet. So I think you're right. You are still made to feel selfish mm. if you do go, I need to just take a step back from work and from other things as well. Yeah. What advice do you have to men in general who are maybe struggling with their mental health and don't know how to talk about it, don't really know what to do and are bottling it up or staying busy? What should they do? I think everyone's different. And this is what I've come to discover that especially men, we're all different. There's this huge thing. I've pushed it before in the past and now I've stopped is trying to make men cry. So like, you know, it's, it's cool. It's fine to be emo emotional as a man, like men should cry. Yeah. But some men can't cry. That's just who they are. And also not everyone wants to cry. Exactly. Not always help. And now I feel like men are judging themselves if they can't show emotions. Yeah. And also you've got that stiff upper lip, like don't cry. And this is the whole issue that I feel is with men and why the suicide rates amongst men is so high. Mm. And it's plain to see with my dad now is my granddad is 93. He's still alive. It's been through war. Um, my dad was an only child. He lost him in March and he lost my nan in April. So he lost his wife and his son in a month. Yeah. Didn't cry. Stiff upper lip. Never really seen him cry. Only until recently when his um, health is, you know, deteriorating. Mm. And I think my dad saw him as a father figure. But then my nan brought my dad up who was more sensitive. So my dad as a father was more sensitive to me and my brother. Mm. But if I didn't have a good game of football, he would tell me about it. And he would make sure that I knew that granddad would give him a harder time yeah. if he was in that situation. And then I think now with my generation and our generation, it's the same. We don't really know what a man is. Whereas my granddad's generation it was a little bit more black and white. You knew exactly the role of a man in that society. And I think a lot of men are struggling to know what their place is. Mm. But I think it comes down to, again, self-awareness, just understanding what works for you. Some men like talking to one of their friends or writing it down or talking to a counsellor or, um, you know, going to the gym and letting it out that way. The, the main thing that I always say with men in particular is they have to, and everyone, they have to let their emotions out. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you talk to a counsellor or talk to a friend or write it down, but you have to get it out somehow. Thanks very much to Paul. If you've been affected by any of the issues we've discussed today, please contact the Samaritans on 116-123 or go to the website at samaritans.org. If you've liked this episode, please give us a review on iTunes. You can also join us on Facebook if you search Mentally Yours and on Twitter, we're at Mentally Yours, your spelt Y-R-S. Thanks very much to our producer, Sam Bonham, to Paul McGregor for chatting to us today and to Lucy Baker for the jingles. See you next week. Mm -hmm.